0: Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. In the past month, we saw the return of some of TV's best shows, so we wanted to remind you about our Recapables feed, where our staff breaks down current episodes from your favorites like Game of Thrones, Killing Eve, and Billions. Also, make sure to check in each week to hear special one-off recaps on shows like The Bold Type, Very Cavallari, Cobra Kai, and more. So as you keep up with your top shows, tune in to the Recapables feed each week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the wide scope of various movie stars' careers. I am joined by my two career archaeologists, Amanda Dobbins, and on the line, Rob Harvilla. Hello, guys. Hello, Sean. Rob, this is where you say hello. Yes, thank you, sir. Hi, Rob. (laughs) Hello there. Guys, we're here to talk about Avengers Endgame. Just oh kidding. Uh, we've been doing that for what feels <laughs> Honestly, like 300 years. As
2: soon as you said that, I was like, sure, okay, let's go. Now we talk about superheroes. Muscle
1: memory. No, of course, we are here to talk about Charlize Theron because Charlize is the star of a new romantic comedy called Longshot. Yes. Longshot is a, a delightful new movie about a very powerful politician and the schlub that she falls in love with. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, the schlub, of course, is played by Seth Rogen. We're going to talk a little bit about Longshot at the end of the show, and then after that, I have a conversation with the director of Longshot, Jonathan Levine, returning guest to The Big Picture, very smart guy, also a fellow Mets fan, so please support him. But first, let's talk about Charlize. Amanda, I'll start with you. Just generally speaking, what's your relationship to the actress Charlize Theron, one of our perhaps last true movie stars?
2: Yes. It was interesting when I was going through the IMDb to kind of take in the whole career and be able to answer your question— I realize I'm a very uh, late past Charlize person, and I think that she came into my life like in this decade, in the beginning of this decade, uh, probably around young adults and the third wave of her career. And that is not, that's on me. That's not on Charlize. Charlize has been like a really, really famous and successful movie star doing a lot of different types of movies for many years now. But um, for a long time, she made the types of movies that I don't really go see. And, you know, I saw Monster because she won an Oscar for it. And you s- I saw The Italian Job because I like a heist movie. You know, I was very familiar, but I didn't... She was doing a different type of movie, like kind of action-based. Um, it She was often the only woman in a cast or the only, you know, one of the only women in the cast. And so... It has been it was interesting just to reflect on how I found her and the the choices that she made um and what kind of movie star she became and she really did level up as well and I think that's when we all kind of paid attention it's it's funny to say that she leveled up like 10 years after winning an Oscar.
1: I think that's part of what makes her an interesting person to talk about because she is definitely having a sort of career in reverse from a lot of other people who start out maybe in genre movies or movie starry things that are not as prestigious and then slowly evolve and eventually get to their their Oscar moment. She did the opposite in many ways. Rob, what about you? What's your relationship to Charlize? You've been down since day one?
3: I I can't say that I have because for a long while she made movies that I sort of instinctively avoided. Like, as we'll discuss, like, I think my favorite movies of hers are Young Adult and Tully, which are both movies that I avoided, like The Plague, when they first appeared. (laughs) Because, like, Young Adult, like, I have sort of an aversion to cringy, sort of super sour movies. And Tully, I have an aversion to, like, movies about struggling parents reasons, you know, I don't think you have to psychoanalyze either of those too deeply, but I just I feel like (laughs) I missed her best work on purpose, you know, and like I, I, I saw her and and in Mad Max and in Atomic Blonde and movies like that. And like Amanda, I sort of, I saw a monster and just sort of this dutiful, like this person's going to win an Oscar and I guess deserves to win an Oscar sort of way. But like it's, it, I guess in the end, she's a movie star in the sense that I ended up really loving movies that she was in that I am extremely preconditioned to not love and to almost not be able to watch at all. If that makes any sense, like it's, it's very impressive what this, this person the kind of experiences movie going experiences this movie has sort of this person has sort of dragged me through at this point
1: yeah i I think of her as arguably the most versatile actress of her generation, and I'm not totally sure that that's her reputation per se, but if you look at the different kinds of movies and in some ways, long shot is a new shade, it's a new color for mm-hmm. her because she has done comedy before, but maybe not this broad and this kind of down the middle and this crowd-pleasing. A lot of her comedy has been Arrested Development stint or uh, A Million Ways to Die in the West, which is perhaps not as successful as we'd want it to be, or Hancock, which is sort of of the action comedy variety. She started out in in interesting fashion. I feel like the three movies that we picked are all very different, though they use her in similar ways. Uh, we usually start these shows specifically by talking about the sort of breakthrough moment. Rob, for you, when does, when does Charlize really break through?
0: It's alive. It's, alive. it's, alive. it's alive.
3: I, My pick was Two Days in the Valley. You made your husband
2: feel like shit. That's why he cheated on you. You deserved alimony. You liked him. You really liked him.
0: Of course
3: i liked him uh which when is from 1996 like it's john Herzfeld, and it's like it's an extremely 90s movie <laughs> like it, it's you know like a tarantino whimsical misadventures of small-time crooks in la ensemble type situation like danny aiello cooks and eats an entire meal of italian food <laughs> while holding a gun like it's that kind of movie and i it's it was my first exposure to her and like the first time she appears on screen is James Spader holds up a naked bloody polaroid of her insinuating that she's dead which she is not but like that's the way she's introduced in the movie her character's name is Helga Svelgen It's just it's it's a very inauspicious like introduction. Like her first big scene is like this super lurid sex scene with James Spader, which was like, you know, a requirement in LA in the 90s, you know, like to get a driver's (laughs) license or whatever. Like her big scene, her climactic scene is this hotel room brawl with Terry Hatcher. You know, like there's there's clips from this movie on Pornhub, I guess is the simplest way to explain (laughs) it. Like it's it's inauspicious. And like at one point, James Spader says. To her, it's you're not too tall, it's the world that's too short. And I feel like that's her career for like the first five years or so. Like, I, I actually think the first movie I saw her in was Celebrity, which was a couple years later from 1998. And it's like extremely minor, Woody Allen. And her character's name is literally Supermodel. And K- Kenneth Branagh is the star and he's like doing a Woody Allen impression. And she appears on screen and she's beautiful and immaculate and super intimidating. And she goes like, I like your car. And Kenneth Branagh just goes blah, 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 blah. Like, like nobody, <laughs> nobody on screen with her could even talk to her as though she were a normal person. It feels like for the first solid half decade of her career. Like you just you see this person, you can tell they're a movie star and you can tell that the movies are going to take a really long time to figure out how to interface with her as like a human being.
1: I think that's incredibly on point. I mean, she, of course, uh, is from South Africa, got her start in the business as a model. And it just seemed like they were iterating on model archetype for Mm -hmm. four or five years. And she becomes this object of affection slash adulation slash objectification in every single movie. Two Days in the Valley in particular is like isn't her character sort of an assassin but sort of a sex pot but sort of just like a, <laughs> like a side yeah. piece you know like she all contains of those multitudes things. She does, sort sure. of in a way yeah. in a very and, um, and
2: yet nothing at all
1: yeah exactly there's sort of like such, such an empty <laughs> vessel such a such a perfect embodiment of life in the valley but it's interesting I never would have guessed that she would have gotten to where she got based on that movie because there are a lot of movies like that and there are a lot of supermodels who are cast in movies at that time who don't ultimately go on and don't have talent or don't have the right vision for how to shape a career and I think one thing that, that I think we will get a sense as we talk about this is she's very smart and she's very smart about knowing what kind of roles to pick and when to zag when everyone is zigging. And in some ways, it took her a couple of years. Like you say, Amanda, your first pick is also a sort of an objectification role.
2: It is, though it's a little more self-aware. I picked this for a couple of reasons. Number one, because this is the first time that I saw Shirley's there on screen, which was in That Thing You Do. And if you don't remember her role in That Thing You Do, she plays the hometown girlfriend of Guy, the drummer. This is hardly a date guy. I thought we were going to the movies and dinner at the club.
3: We're going to cream these ladies. Well, how long is this going to be? I've been looking for you everywhere. you got to set up.
2: Who eventually becomes Um, a one hit wonder um, with the band and then falls in love with Liv Tyler. And Charlize is his very beautiful, cold, distant girlfriend who doesn't really care that he's in a band, like, isn't really into him, and then falls in love with her, like, beefcake dentist. And 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 they play that for laughs. And so she is kind of more attractive than everyone else on screen and is kind of dolled up in that 50s, 60s way and is supposed to be unapproachable. But that is also supposed to be funny and she is playing a little vapid and out of it, she's in on the joke. And so I think, you know, because we're going to talk about her comedy, I I thought it was relevant. And also, I think we've already talked about how beautifully she is, and we're going to have to deal with it. But the way that she plays with her attractiveness throughout her career is, like, kind of the through point. She's, like, kind of, she's either using it or turning it on its head. She's very aware of it, and is aware of how people respond to it. And you can see that even in that thing you do.
1: Yeah, she's a real shapeshifter in some ways, too. And and the movie that I picked for The Breakthrough is certainly one of the most ludicrous movies movies ever made. It's The Devil's Advocate.
2: Kevin, I'll never see you anymore. And now that you've got this big case, it's just only going to get worse. If you can believe it, I'm actually looking forward to having your mother come and visit.
0: What about the apartment?
2: God damn! go and change things around this is not about the apartment they hate this stupid place Uh, perhaps
1: even more ludicrous than two days in the valley or that thing you do and charlize is also a supporting character in this movie she plays marianne lomax the uh i guess sort of vivacious party girl slash hardworking wife of uh, an aspirant young lawyer in gainesville florida played by keanu reeves this lawyer is hired by a white shoe law firm in new york And they move from Florida up to New York and they take on this new and fancy lifestyle. And it is very exciting, but ultimately overwhelming. We come to learn over the course of the movie that Marianne Lomax is either suffering from schizophrenia or has been raped and damaged by Satan, who Mm -hmm. is the man who runs the law firm that Kevin Lomax has been hired by. And that man is played by Al Pacino. All of that is real and all of that is true about this movie. I think... The the only performance in the movie that seems to be that is pretty hysterical, but is not trying is trying to be real. I think is Charlize's performance. Everybody else is acting in a movie that is a ridiculous uh, Caravaggio painting. It's just like over exaggerated, ridiculous, metaphorical. And Charlize is you know she's a young actress at this point, but she's trying to do a transformation from a woman who's got curly blonde hair to a woman who cuts all her hair off and dyes it brown, who changes her uh the way that she looks, she sort of goes from like high powered Hollywood executive style to like Eileen Fisher, like I stay in my apartment all day style in the movie. It's a very fascinating transformation.
2: I just... Let's talk about a high-powered Hollywood executive style for, like, the...
1: She's, she's in a power suit at the beginning of the movie.
2: Well, it's a very tight... <laughs> it's the 90s lawyer movie version of a power suit, which is about three sizes smaller than any professional woman, which, you know what? Charlize pulls it off. She looks great. But I, let's... It's like the Ally McBeal version of a suit.
1: Well put. That's okay. a good point. Nevertheless, she goes through a crazy transformation, and... In some in some respects, like the performance doesn't work. It's it's really over the top. Um, but she you can sense that she's trying to locate something that is real in a movie that is completely unreal. And I it it it, it just incredibly memorable to me. It it's it sticks out to me in a movie that is full of a lot of things that really stick out. Um in each of these movies that we're talking about, she is not, not the star. And she's used as a person who is sort of like positioned against what a man is doing. And you, you can see this kind of throughout the first four or five years of her career. You know, she goes on, and she makes like The Astronaut's Wife and she is the wife. She goes on to makes The Cider House Rules and she is not the main character. She goes on to make Reindeer Games and she is stuck beside Ben Affleck. Like for about five to 10 years, she has to be uh, subservient in a lot of ways to the male characters. I don't know if she did it by dint of her own will or because, you know, she's gone on to be a producer. She's a humanitarian. She has, is a person who is in control of a lot of the things in her career. But I've always found it fascinating that the, the switch just kind of flipped at some point. It feels like it's basically Monster, and I think we have to talk about Monster. Even though you know you guys have both noted that you watched it sort of ab- or you watched it sort of out of obligation rather than enjoyment, because a lot of the movies she had made to that point were very popcorny. You know, mm-hmm. movies like The Italian Job.
2: And you, I never heard how you got your start.
1: Me? Well, I've been a thief since I had baby teeth. Sweet November, and
2: you got the job, didn't you?
1: Best offer anyone
3: ever made
1: me. Even the Ciderhouse rules to some extent was sort of like so that warm bath literary adaptation.
2: Hi. I'm the best. You are?
3: Wow.
1: The best, the best of what?
2: I'm the best one. The best one, huh? I'm the best. The
1: monster one. is, of course, Patty Jenkins's portrayal of Eileen Warrenos who is a, perhaps the most famous female serial killer. And it's a very ugly movie.
2: It's very unpleasant to watch. You know what?
0: I think now I'd like to have what everybody else has worked their entire life for. It doesn't work that way.
2: Fuck you, man. Yeah, fuck you. You don't fucking know me.
1: I wouldn't say it's even particularly great. I don't think it has a much narrative shape. I don't totally... I was surprised that it emerged. It It seems like a classic example of this woman made a choice to... To get closer to the character, uglify herself. Mm -hmm. And we should reward that.
2: It's pretty much the standard example of you go ugly to win an Oscar which we have, you you make a physical transformation to win an Oscar, which is something you, Sean and I talked a lot about on our Oscar show. And Charlize is always example number one. She comes one year after Nicole Kidman won for The Hours. And Nicole Kidman also wore prosthetics in that movie. It was a weird moment in time where this is what we decided to reward, which was the most beautiful, literally some of the most beautiful women in the world just wearing fake stuff. And it's like, wow, bravery. Um but I do think that monster is just be is beyond just putting on some weird teeth for Charlies. Sure, it's definitely a different dark strange type of performance. It asks a lot of the audience. I had forgotten you really are supposed to empathize with this person which it, we could talk about that or we you know what we don't have to talk about it, but it's it's challenging and she really goes for it she goes for it in movies a lot I mean that's even in the devil's advocate you were saying that it's a she's trying to be real but like she's also screeching with the rest of them she is not doing the quiet distant supermodel in a lot of these movies and I think the Oscar for monster is as much about it's definitely for uglifying but as much just going for it what she does
1: Rob when's the last time you watched monster
3: like two days ago, and I <laughs> yeah. I agree completely with Amanda. And again, like did at the time, like it just it was the perfunctory. This is what you do to win an Oscar, and it's it's the full body, you know, and full voice sort of transformation was impressive to me then, and still is now. Like that violent like hair flip that she does, or like she throws her entire like she like snaps her neck like her entire head back. Like she's really honoring. The specific nuances of this of this character, who like you couldn't blame her for just not wanting to honor at all, you know, it, it's impressive in that sense. And it, I, I think, it only it it feels obvious and like a gimme and like just the uh, the thing you do to win an Oscar in retrospect. Like I, I think it was braver at the time, and when she was on Bill Simmons's podcast i think a couple years ago uh before atomic Blonde, like she talks about how like they started shooting and they sent some footage and like producers called and like screamed at her on the phone in, in the you know early in the morning because you know she had uglified herself because it wasn't like you know a kicky like lesbian serial killer like titillating sort of movie like it's it struck me then as the movie more to be admired to be enjoyed certainly and and watching it a couple days ago i i I took it as that, but had a little more appreciation for it. Like I kept thinking about this movie we got coming up where Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy, you know, and it's like, and based on the trailer, at least, you know, it's looking to be this sort of satirical American psycho, like, like kind of winking lurid type thing, you know? And I, I I sort of walked away from monster the second time thinking, you know, like sometimes too heavy is better than a lot of alternatives.
1: It's an incredible uh, tease for a forthcoming episode of The Big Picture, Rob, where we'll be talking to the director <laughs> of that movie, Joe Berlinger, who uh, the Ted Bundy movie you're referring to, which I believe is called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Vile and Evil.
3: Uh, right, the, judge, the judge's quote. Yes, right, of course, right,
1: delivered right. with real sincerity by John Malkovich in the movie. Uh, it, what happens <laughs> after Monster is interesting because you see that she gets a chance to be the author of her own fate much more in Hollywood. And the movies that she takes on almost all of which do not succeed, is, is pretty fascinating to me. And you can see that she uses this period, and we'll get this sort of gets us to our, our individual personal pinnacles.
3: These are the new leads. These are the Glengarry leads.
1: Immediately afterwards, she makes Head in the Clouds, reuniting with Keanu Reeves. She makes North Country, a movie that she is nominated for an Oscar for that failed at the box office. And I think has like basically no reputation in the popular consciousness. And it's actually a really interesting movie about a woman who is fighting sexual harassment working in the mining industry. And I wouldn't say it's a great film, but it is a film that she made with a female filmmaker in the mid aughts and is meaningful. And it's fascinating that those are really her only two Oscar moments, despite having this this sort of blooming career. You know, Amanda, you've only really gotten interested in her in the last 10 years, you said, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that she was doing... This kind of work, you know, a couple of years later, she makes In the Valley of Ella, which is also a sort of very heavy-handed but interesting piece. I think it's Paul Haggis's first movie after Crash. Um, features a good Tommy Lee Jones performance. Wedged in between those two is Aeon Flux.
3: Why did you come back? What do you want from me?
2: What do I want? I want my sister back. I want to remember what it feels like to be a person.
1: Aeon Flux, I think, is the failed test tube baby for what her career was going to be. She kind of wanted to be an action star. She was looking for a project to position herself as a mainstream big top action hero. And she chose Karin Kusama, who had only made a couple of small films prior to this. And it's one of the all-time notorious, mismanaged, overmanaged, recut at the end, at the very last minute. Hollywood Productions It lost a lot of money. It was based on... um, Rob, I'm sure a, a, an MTV animated series you remember quite well uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, that I'm certain that we were watching in that weird block of Beavis and Butthead and the head. Liquid television. Liquid television. That's exactly right. The
3: fly in the eyelash. Yes, I, I remember <laughs>
1: it well. Um, but all of that sort of, you know, failure, for lack of a better word, these sort of these projects that don't really take off leads to Hancock, which is in some ways basically 10 years ahead of Captain Marvel and did all the stuff that we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks celebrating Hancock. You know the twist of Hancock. For those of you who haven't seen Hancock, I guess you can turn this podcast off. Though you're your sociopath. If you're also, concerned by about the way, I, I only
2: watched it last week, and uh, it's the twist is obvious in the first ten minutes. It is very just obvious. Just So you know, yeah.
1: yeah, it is very obvious. And Hancock, you know, some some of Hancock is very charming. Some of it doesn't work that well. It was in sort of the latter stages of Will Smith as the very most important movie star that we right. had. He plays a sort of drunken and uh, lazy and frustrated superhero. Charlie's Theron, it turns out, is also a superhero in this film, and she's very charming. I wouldn't say it's one of her best movies.
2: But- no, the she is really the only person doing the emotional lifting in this movie.
3: Hancock sneezed, huh?
2: Can you believe it? Achoo. chew. It's amazing that you slept through that. You're
3: a good Holy sleeper. Holy
2: shit. I'm not gonna say I told you so, but which What about I'm Bateman? False her or- No. <laughs> God bless <laughs> Bateman. Very funny.
3: What's this? Are we going on vacation? Mm-hmm. Are we?
2: Just the three
3: of us. End of the summer. Tonight. Tonight.
2: Spur of the moment. Tonight might be a little tough. Come
3: on. The three of us. Me in a bikini.
2: I'd like a Thumb great one? reconnection for them. I think you it's know? a great Bateman moment. Yeah, and but it's, it's kind of... That was a nice way of saying that Will Smith is like a little... This movie doesn't know what to do with Will Smith, which is like if your movie doesn't know what to do with Will Smith, then you failed as a movie. Um, but she... She pulls it together. The one scene when she's, like, explaining the mythology and explaining how they're connected is, like, when you care and when you're invested in what happens in it. Who are we? Gods, angels, different cultures call us by different names. Now all of a sudden it's superhero.
1: Yeah, I always wanted to see the original version of Hancock, which was written by Vince Gilligan and then completely rewritten. And this was sort of in the heyday of the, the Breaking Bad rise. And apparently that original script was hard R, very vulgar, very complicated. It was way before the sort of like Zack Snyderification of these mm-hmm. kinds of movies, um, but still meant to be funny. We never got it, alas. It does take us essentially to rob your personal pinnacle, who, which you alluded to at the top of the show.
3: Yes, uh Young Adult uh from 2011 uh it's directed by Jason Reitman and written by Diablo Cody which their second collaboration after Juno of course which depending on how you feel about Juno like either don't get excited or don't hold that against them you know I my wife walked in while I was watching it and she was like what was it like and I said it's super sour and she said you hate sour and I said yes so I again let me preface this by saying that I hate sour and like find these kinds of movies very specifically difficult to watch. Uh, she plays like a young adult fiction author in her late 30s who's like a stunted and actively terrible person. She's returning to her tiny Minnesota hometown to steal back her high school boyfriend who is happily married with a baby. You know, she meets Patton Oswalt, who's one of the many, her many spurned high school classmates. And she sort of just proceeds to offend and horrify and dismiss everyone. uh, Watching it now, she reminded me a lot of Villanelle in Killing Eve, like the less whimsical version, but just this very misanthropic, you know, villainous person who also has this kind of irresistible hit me with a truck sort of magnetism, (laughs) like even in her worst (laughs) moments, like, and I, I I think what strikes me about this movie, it's just the details add up for me and sort of resonate with me, like the teenage fan club song and like the Ben and Jerry's pints and the way she's chugging like two liters of diet Coke, you know, the way she's exercising on a Nintendo Wii, you know, for a long watching it myself, like I'm, I'm braced for all these sort of massive cringy like office style set pieces. Where I have to sort of hide under my couch. But like the vast majority of the movie, it's like it's mostly her small gestures and like her eye rolls and just this sort of statuesque presence that she has that like weirdly reminded me of Mad Max, in Fury Road, like just where it's less anything she says or does or like these huge melodramatic moments she has than just how coolly she does everything. Like everybody around her is still too short. You know, and it's the movie like it's the it's sort of set you up for her redemption and then very graciously declines to redeem her. And it's as ugly and, you know, there's a lack of vanity that it in its own way is as bracing as monsters was. And yet you 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 never quite stop rooting for her, you know, and I surprise myself again very much by just never having to turn it off.
1: What do you you and I talked about young adult Amanda a little bit. Yeah. I, what is your relationship to that movie?
2: I don't love the movie. I. Rob, I share your aversion to sourness. And I find that all of these characters, we'll talk more about Tully, are not just sour, but really infatuated with their own sourness. And like the entire character work is just like, wow, can you believe what a dick this person is? And I'm just like, well, yes, I can. (laughs) Because everyone's a dick, you know? And then then often the whole arc of the movie is like, we're going to make him not a dick anymore. And I'm just like, well, life doesn't work like that. So I find that aspects of it a bit limiting. But at the same time, This was when I was like, oh, this is a movie for me, you know, like she is kind of picking different projects and I went to see it and I was interested in it. I, you know, recognize the references. She's basically writing The Babysitter's Club, but not. And Patrick Wilson is in it. And and that was very exciting for me. So (laughs) it's kind of when I tuned back into Charlize because of her choices. And I I just think it's so interesting because this is really the The kind of the tipping point for her. She was a mainstream movie star when we still had mainstream movie stars. And 2011 is kind of when you see the rise of franchise and when you see the rise of superheroes and you lose that like big name box office appeal. It's just not working in the same way anymore. And she has managed to totally find a new phase of career for herself when a lot of people were not able to do that. Like a lot of our great movie stars of the late 90s and 2000s were wiped out. And she has a knack for picking projects. She has a knack for doing something interesting. She clearly had a vision for herself and it starts with young adult. So I think it's interesting.
1: I do think, I I've always, I admire the fact, even if this is sort of a basic opinion, that those characters that she's creating with Reitman, with Diablo Cody are not redeemed. They're they're almost never like perfected. Like young adult to me doesn't end on like a a, a super happy note.
2: They're not perfected, but they are redeemed or defended.
1: They're defended. Yeah, sure.
2: without a lot of complication, which is kind of my ultimate problem with them.
1: Yes. Well, that's complicated. I mean, yeah. I think it's interesting that she chooses great parts, but also chooses bad parts, and we don't hold them against her. Mm-hmm. Um, the movies that she makes after Young Adult, this is quite a run, actually. Snow White and the Huntsman, in which she's having a lot of fun kind of hamming it up as an evil queen. yeah. But not a memorable movie. Probably best remembered as the movie in which Kristen Stewart cheated on Robert Pattinson <laughs> with the director Rupert Sanders. I gotta
2: say though that like that was a real moment. And Snow White and the Huntsman is a movie that I saw in theaters, which Great. is hilarious. That some weird stuff happens in it. They did have that tabloid moment at a time when it was hard to hard to have a tabloid moment. She's still relevant, so she's no doubt, yeah, no doubt. And it's like hard to be relevant with a weird movie about like a Snow White fanfic.
1: I agree with you. It's an even weirder movie is called Prometheus that comes immediately afterwards. I like her performance in Prometheus and I'm a a pretty avid defender of that film, though. I'm not sure that it's aging that great. I'm not sure that in the consciousness it really holds much importance. Her role is complicated. And in some ways she is also sort of subservient to this extremely old guy Pierce character um, and is bound by his wishes. And she's on a mission that will ultimately lead to basically the destruction of, the universe and all of its societies, based on the whims of her evil father. Uh, then she makes a million ways to die in the West, which is Seth MacFarlane's very, very bad Western comedy. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what there is to say about that movie. Like, it's pretty fascinating that she made Young Adult, and people are like, "This is really, truly an exciting and brave actress."
2: Can I just say, and then
1: she made these three movies?
2: Can I just say, so, yeah, she's got a cool girl streak. If yeah. you're familiar with the cool girl rant in a uh, Gone Girl,
1: cool girl. Men
0: always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl.
2: Cool girl is
0: hot. You look amazing and uh, maybe a little uncomfortable.
2: I look like Jane Austen threw up all over me.
0: You do, you do not look like Jane Austen threw No, you look you look absolutely beautiful.
2: Cool girl is fun. If I can shoot six out of six on Albert's behalf, you owe him a dollar. If I can't. He owes you a dollar.
0: Wait, what?
3: Mm-hmm. A dollar! I've never seen a dollar! Nobody's got a dollar! Let us see the dollar! Well,
0: wow. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She always kissed smiles. her. She didn't kiss me, all right? It's not her fault. I mean, she didn't tell me she was married, so it's a little bit her fault, I guess. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. So, maybe just shoot her in the arm? What
2: the? And she likes to pick movies where she's just hanging out and, then, like, busting stuff up with a bunch of dudes. And I, that, that that to me is the Seth MacFarlane Million Days Ways to Die in the West thing in a nutshell.
1: There are some ways to do that in a way that is ineffective and there are some ways yeah. to do it in a ways that are effective. And so my personal pinnacle is kind of a two-part kind of a cheat. I think Mad Max Fury Road might be the very best movie she's been a part of and her role. She's critical to the movie. And, and if Fur, Imperator for I can't say the, name, the character's name. This is a huge problem. How did they make a movie with a character named Imperator Furiosa? And she's the star. Well, that's no, just one, talks, so no one talks, so they don't like. They that's never great. have to say it, which
2: is true. And I, that's no shots at Mad Max, which I think is probably. I agree with you. It's her best movie, and it's sort of like the single. When you think of New Charlize, you think of of that image of her,
1: right? And it's it's basically a silent movie performance. It's her glowering behind the wheel of a, a furiously racing car and going toe to toe with Tom Hardy, and on a mission that we can't fully understand until we get to the end of the movie, and. It's, it's just kind of an amazing old-school action movie performance. It's a, it's kind of a John Wayne movie, and that's obviously larded with some political complications, but she is in the vein of the kind of like Lee Marvin, stoic-type, angry character who never really breaks that stride until you get to the end and you have the sort of emotional climax of the movie. It's very cool. It's quite different, though quite the same to Atomic Blonde, which is far more physical, balletic emotionally charged she kind of goes to the depths of her feelings in that movie even though it's about a three-timing assassin um who you can never tell whose side she's playing that's also uh she's also playing a character who is bisexual it seems and who is somewhere between comic book fantasy and real life hard-bitten detective novel and as that movie didn't quite have the impact on culture that i thought it was going to Chris Ryan and I saw it at South by and I remember that was sort of one of the most raucous screenings I had ever been to in my life. I mean, people were crawling over the chairs at the end of that movie and I expected it to be a, a big, big deal. It's, it's well remembered for the two very famous fight sequences that happened in the apartment and then on the staircase. And that's, of course, part of the reason why it's an amazing thing that she's done is the the fight choreography that happens in that movie. But I think the performance in Atomic Blonde just as an actress is also really, really impressive um, Amanda, I know *Tom Blonde is your favorite movie of all time.
2: It's this is the most Amanda story, but I very famously and honestly, totally accidentally went to the bathroom during the staircase scene. I just like didn't know that that was why you were supposed to go. Uh, <laughs> and as my husband was like, "Interesting choice by you." Um, that said, I agree with what you're saying. And just to go back to *Mad Max*, it, both of them are very interesting. They're not super verbal performances, and in many ways, she is playing like with her image and kind of using her extremely striking physical appearance. Um, she has figured out how to harness it and make it work in really interesting ways. Like Mad Max, in some ways, what she's doing is both—it's like John Wayne, like an act, an action star, like—and she's also kind of modeling. Like in many ways, it's it is using her physical powers, which in her case are like a skill in a, in addition to an attribute, and figuring out how to make those work within film, which is an extremely visual medium. And Atomic Blonde is an extension of that. It's a really physical performance, and she is. So she is so striking that for a long time she was playing against type. And even in Young Adult and Tully, which we'll talk about, she's kind of playing against her attractiveness. And it's interesting to see her use it in different ways.
1: I get a big kick out of her next movie, which is The Fate of the Furious, in which she I think just went to uh, a blacked out room full of satellite technology for four days and just yelled into a microphone at Vin Diesel. It's really fun. Though. I hope she made like $500 million for that part. She plays a character named Cypher. It's the classic thing where I think they probably wrote that part for a man and then they gave it to her and then she was like, I would do, I'll would i play Cypher. And they were like, okay, cool. You play Cypher. Uh, Rob, what do you make of the action trilogy that Charlize is doing as she sort of enters her 40s, interestingly?
3: You know, it's an interesting movie to revisit now is Aeon Flux, actually, uh, which I, I was also struck when she was on Bill's podcast, like he was just going through her IMDb and he said Aeon Flux and she just went Ugh. like she she she's not arguing for it even now as some kind of misunderstood masterpiece. And like, I'm not either, but like watching it. You know, it's just, it's all like gymnastics and exposition and techno. And there's a lady in this movie with hands for feet. And it's like, it's totally (laughs) ridiculous. And it Mm -hmm. also struck me in retrospect as like a drive run for atomic blonde. Like it's basically the same movie, you know, like she's badass, but she's vulnerable, but she's a badass, but she's vulnerable. And she's, she's filmed like this lethal art object. Like Amanda says, like she's modeling, you know, and there's, there's a conspiracy and it's confusing and it's heavily stylized to the point where she can disappear If she wants, and it's it's just interesting to think about the effect that John Wick has had on action movies and the way that these movies are validated now, if they're prestige and gritty, and you can do that sort of affectless, like extreme Zen Keanu Reeves type deal, you know, like it's it's. But the I I was also surprised that Atomic Blonde did not have the impact that I that I thought it was going to have, and I think part of the reason is like people forget that a big part of the appeal of John wick is that the plot of John wick is literally, he kills several hundred people because they killed his dog. Like that's the plot of the movie. Like I rewatching atomic blonde. Now, like the fight scenes are incredible and it's, it's, it's genuinely a joyful thing to watch her just beat the crap out of people. But like the double, triple, quadruple cross, like political intrigue parts of that movie just don't land for me at all. You know, it's just, it's, it just total confusion followed by incredible flight scenes, which is, you know, a totally delightful way to spend two hours. But uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting that she's become an action hero, but in, in that same kind of way, you know, she's still modeling and she still feels like she's nine feet tall compared to everyone else on screen. And I, you know, the way Amanda hearkened, you know, Hancock to Captain Marvel, like watching Mad Max again, I was thinking about, you know, the big, all the female superheroes moment in Endgame, you know, like it's just like oh my god, like what are you doing? Like you don't have to advertise girl power, quote unquote like this explicitly, you know, and I, I think that she's found a, a way to be an action hero without like spelling it out in these huge bold letters and sometimes it doesn't work, but but, but when it works, I think it's more effective for the way that she's underplaying it.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Amanda, you chose Tully, it did, which is significantly different from these action movies that we're talking about. Yeah. And it's, it's so fascinating to me that there are two Jason Reitman movies in, the, in, the, in this conversation. And it's you're true. not historically a big fan of Jason's movies. I'm
2: not. And I think like the first 15 minutes of Tully are really difficult for me because they're doing the same like, wow, well, this person sucks. Isn't it funny? And I find that.
1: See, I would say that in that case, the person who sucks is the children. Okay. That that is the well, that is the all unfair. time do not they're have working. children it's advice machine of that's true. I've ever seen.
2: That's true. I, they're working through some stuff, and then I find the ending way too neat. Uh, which we don't even need to spoil the ending if you haven't seen it. But I chose Tully because she does this after Atomic Blonde and Mad Max, and she's reinvented herself as like this kind of unapproachable action star intimidating and strong and amazing. And then she does Tully, which I just think is a cool pivot. This is when you're like, she really does have the range. I also find the hour in the middle when it's just a Charlize Theron and Mackenzie Davis kind of two-hander to be electric. And you see Charlize, she just has a range of emotion. She has empathy, which is like not something she often gets to Deploy. She is sensitive. She's angry. It's like it's a fully lived in performance. And I think it's also really interesting. You don't see her acting with women that often. And I thought Hmm. this was just really interesting what Mackenzie Davis brings out in her. And to me, I was just like, she can do anything is is what Tully brought home, even though it's a tough watch. And I don't know that it sticks the landing, but I think she's spectacular in it.
1: Yeah, I like that movie a lot. And it it is it, it haunts me. It mm-hmm. haunts me every time my wife and I sit down and talk about the future. I'm like, have you seen Tully? It's, a, it's just a very upsetting yeah. movie. Rob as a parent. What do you make of Tully?
3: Well, yeah, I was going to say the villain of that movie for me is Ron Livingston, honestly. Like in, yes. in my 20s, I feel uh, in my 20s I fear like I was going to turn into John Cusack in High Fidelity, mm. like just this super aloof and heartless doofus, you know. And now here in my 40s, I fear turning into Ron Livingston and Tully. Like every time they show him with a video game headset, like just checked out. And like, she describes him at one point as like the bench on the carousel. I think like I just, the, the, the parts of the movie I winced at the most were his parts, you know, but I, yeah, I, I agree with Amanda that I, I love the part in the middle with Mackenzie Davis you know, I, Diablo C- Cody's dialogue is sort of a strong spice, and like just the way that she delivers, like a joke, like you know, no one's treated my whole in a real, really long time. Like you can imagine, like the Zach Braff version of that movie where that's like a super groaner line but like charlie's just has this way of telling jokes that that keeps them from becoming like groaners you know and at her angriest like her voice is not rising above a whisper you know to not frighten the baby like i again i was really nervous about watching that movie i i can't say that i enjoyed it in real time but I, i i did i was just pulled all the way through it by just how vivid and how real and how honest it was
1: how honest do we think Charlie's new movie Long Shot is? I wonder.
2: They're here. Well, are <laughs> Hmm. Rob, you Rob, you have thoughts on this. You want to start?
3: <laughs> um the most the first thing I need to say is that I've watched her spit take on the internet like the, like, like the part where, she, where he's walking downstairs in the stupid Swedish outfit and she spits out the water I've watched that on the internet like 200 times like that's my favorite <laughs> like two seconds of comedy in forever you know like I yeah I mean I'm writing a piece right now and thinking a lot about this from Seth Rogan's perspective and like the schlub paramour in a rom-com where like the entire premise of the rom-com is I can't believe that this beautiful woman is going out with this total doofus Yes, asked a
1: thousand constituents how they would feel if Kate Middleton... I
3: see where you're going with this. ...were
1: to start dating Danny DeVito. Pretty negative reaction.
3: You know, and I I, I think that she really works to short-circuit a lot of the tropes of that movie, you know, and, and Knocked Up, the problems that sort of arose in retrospect with Knocked Up specifically. Like, I, I really like the part, like, they establish that she polls as not funny, you know, and they need her to be funnier, and, like, the reason he enters the movie is to make her funnier, but, like... The movie doesn't make like a big show of trying to convince us that she's actually not funny, right? Like the, you, you're primed for a bunch of scenes where like she's horribly stiff and she's inhuman and she's she tells these lousy jokes and nobody laughs and like he has to save in he he has to like jump in and save her and like humanize her. Like it's it's not one of these movies where this woman is a huge career success, but the trade off is that she has no like human. Personality you know like it's, it's she doesn't watch Game of Thrones because she doesn 't have time to watch Game of Thrones like again it's still that just everybody around her is just too short and you know I, again i I think everything about that is really nicely underplayed and she's just she is a human and she is funny, and like she doesn't need like a man to make her human again, and like even when she's on Molly you know and defusing a, a terrorist crisis like she's not on Molly, the way a career move, a career woman in a movie like this would be on Molly. I don't want to spoil too much, but
1: that sequence is
3: extremely it's funny. hysterical.
2: Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah, to go back it's like to the Atomic Ant- Blonde. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but I didn't go to the bathroom during it. Um, <laughs> to to go back to the question of honesty. There are two things here. Number one, that she and Seth Rogen really do have chemistry in this movie, which is hard to recreate. And we're going to talk more about Netflix rom-coms and kind of the new wave of rom-coms in the next few weeks. But chemistry is is hard to manufacture. It is an important part of these types of movies. When a movie rests on relationship, they have to work. And I think that there actually is something honest in what is going on between them. And as Rob said, the movie presents it at face value. She doesn't need him to save her or it's not that she just doesn't know how to be a person it's that they have a extremely unlikely connection the other thing this movie is really honest about is just how freaking beautiful Charlize Theron is I think I walked away from this movie more than any other being like holy shit Charlize is the most beautiful woman on the planet and,
1: the, and not in that waifish, cherubic, like, 19-year-old way. She's a 40-something woman, yeah. the most striking person in the room, and, no matter the room. And
2: not in, like, this sex up valley way of right. two days in the valley. It's just, like, she is an accomplished, attractive person, and they're letting the full force of her shine, and it really works. They're not—they're they're being honest about the unlikeliness of the— of the setup. And in fact, it is like that's the premise of the movie. So it is more honest than you might expect from watching the trailer. How about that? Yeah. And
1: I think it it eludes a lot of the kind of quote unquote problematic aspects of a of a, a premise like this, because as Rob is saying, it's about the perception of someone, because when you're a politician, you don't ever actually know the person. And so it's attempting to give you kind of an inside look at a person that you would never have a chance to really understand. And likewise, it gives you kind of a funny look at what seems like a kind of woke strident dummy Brooklyn journalist and I feel like we know a lot of those <laughs> we do. and um I kind of liked those people also having the 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 kind of the piss taken out of them a little bit I thought it was a pretty darned effective modern equivalent of these kinds of movies when when Jonathan and I were talking about the movie you know every filmmaker will be like well I watched the films of Ernst Lubitsch and I watched the films of Hepburn and Tracy but if if you if you squint you can kind of see that they're trying they're attempting to affect a lot of that stuff
2: I think they t- I think that they pull it off i I was dubious, both because, you know, I every single person I know who has only seen the trailer, their reaction has been like, seriously, Charlize and Seth Rogen, like, you know, that's that's not fair to womankind. And yet the um, title
1: of the movie is long Yeah,
2: shot. you know, like people aren't really, they're knee-jerk reactions. And I, I think also, again, romantic comedies and studio romantic comedies and studio comedies, which this is as well, are just in such a strange place right now. I, one of my thoughts was, will people go to a movie theater to watch this? This is like the jam and Friday night, you're at home, rent it on whatever and watch it. But I, I think it is also, it's big and there are the set pieces like the nuclear thing, which we won't. That's it. It's just really funny. It does justify, It's an. it feels like an event. It feels like one of the big old timey, two recognizable names, fallen in love type of movie, which is a feat. In this day and age,
1: it also features uh, a live performance from Boys to Men. So, if you like great R and B music, I would (laughs) encourage you to check that out. Are there any other uh, Charlize Theron performances that you guys looked back on that you want to just reflect on before we wrap this thing up?
2: Well, Sean sent us the Between Two Ferns clip this morning, and I had five minutes, so I watched it.
0: Oh, you were in the movie Monster.
2: Monster, yeah, just Monster.
0: Did you win an Oscar for that? I did. Where's your Oscar
3: statue?
2: It's in my house.
3: I mean, it'd be cool like if you hung it from your like rearview mirror in your car, like a high school tassel.
2: <laughs> Where did that come from? That just that stuff just hangs out in your head. That's funny. <laughs> you know, I said yeah, right that Mad there. Max is her really best funny. performance, and I think she's a great comedian in Long Shot, but what a transcendent performance by Charlize. And it also does such a good job of isolating her place in culture and how people think of her and she's making jokes about her own place in in the world and how people respond to her it's really insightful as well as extremely funny and unexpected like she is she's negging him but you know she's laughing the whole time which is so much more powerful than like what we would expect her to do great stuff
1: yeah, she's a very gifted comedian. She's very funny as Rita leads in, in Arrested Development as well. Yeah. Uh, Rob, any you want to stump for The Legend of Bagger Vance? Anything here that you'd like to <laughs> shout out?
3: I'm going to decline to do that, but I thank you very much. Yeah, it's that's she's my second favorite uh, to, Between Two Ferns guest after Jennifer Lawrence, which I suppose... Is a topic for another time, but yeah, like just <laughs> the, the cackling the cackling there really really got to me like i i rewatching all these like i I really did like Hancock, and I really did think that her chemistry, both with Jason Bateman and with Will Smith in sort of different circumstances was 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 both very effective and i I, I think that was also other than long shot like the movie where her beauty was sort of the most striking and the most intimidating, but she's sort of working to diffuse that in real time and like she just has these very human relationships interactions with both of these people in a way that it's very hard to pull off and like in retrospect you know that's the same year i think hancock is iron man you know and i i I like how she sort of sketched out this superhero slash action hero career that's running parallel to the marvel cinematic universe but is in a lot of ways like just a better and subtler and fuller and more like human take on how to survive that kind of universe
1: yeah, and the truth is, this is not the last time we're going to be talking about her because she is the voice of Morticia Adams in the forthcoming animated <laughs> Adams Family movie, which I don't, I'm not sure if we'll focus on that too much on the show. But then at the end of the year, she plays Megan Kelly in Fair and Balanced, which is Jay Roach's mm-hmm. portrait of the fraught scenario at Fox News in the 21st century. And that sounds like it'll be an interesting opportunity for Charlize to reinvent herself once more. Amanda, Rob, thank you guys for doing this. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. Thanks again to Amanda and Rob. And now let's go to my conversation with the writer-director, Jonathan Levine. Delighted to be joined by my fellow Mets fan, Jonathan Levine, back on the show. Jonathan, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? I'm good. So, Jonathan, I think that Long Shot is your best movie. So I'm really excited to talk about it. thank you.
0: That's so exciting. Um, I am very, very proud of it. Um, I am not a good judge of my own work. But um, from the very beginning of this one, we really felt like we were doing something that people were going to really enjoy.
1: Yeah, I, I want to hear a little bit about how you did that. When I saw the movie at South By, yeah. you came out afterwards and you were like, I'm a little drunk. and yes. I don't know what to say. And you seemed very nervous.
0: Well... Yeah, I was very nervous because, I mean, first of all, South by is such an amazing audience, you know? And so you really want to nail it with them. And, and of course, they immediately make you feel uh, completely at ease. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it was like a big moment for our movie. Um, we were talking right before we started recording about how hard it is to really make noise in this current environment of superhero movies and stuff like that. So I just think we felt a lot of pressure— not just for people to like it but for people to really like it um and that from the whole from the beginning of the conception of this thing has been our goal is just to make it great like the bar ha- is just constantly being raised on entertainment um like non superhero movie entertainment and we really felt that pressure and we really wanted to meet that
1: that uh that pressure yeah you guys really had that annual south by screening where people were like oh shit i love this movie (laughs) which is like a good spot to be in right it was great man it was so fun
0: i mean i'm i'm usually like it's kind of an out of the body experience for me um i've had many great film festival screenings um very been very lucky to do that does not always translate to success in the real world Mm -hmm. um you know south by i think is definitely a great barometer of like commercial success like my first movie, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, premiered in Toronto and we sold it for a bunch of money. Never came out or came out years later and I think just the mythology of it was so built up that people were like, oh, that that's what that film festival thing was and the Wackness won the audience award at Sundance, had an amazing screening there um, and then, you know, came out and I'm very happy with the movie but wasn't like, didn't kind of uh, capitalize on that the way I'd hoped. So I'm always a little skeptical of film festival audiences but this night was felt very special to me and when police men came out i mean we knew we were going to do that um but it was uh that was something i'll never forget it was a very memorable moment but let's <laughs> talk about that a little bit more okay, once cool. we get into the movie
1: uh so tell me where this movie started because it seems like you're in very much still in that very mainstream comedy lane right now which is a pretty empty lane in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons.
0: Yes. Um this movie but this movie did not start um in the era where mainstream comedy was was so as challenged as it is as it is now commercially. Um I think this movie started I mean Dan Sterling wrote this script many many years ago uh in in probably during the Obama administration um and it uh James Weaver, who is uh, Seth and Evan's partner, gave it to me. I think I was in Montreal shooting Warm Bodies. And I just, I, I loved it. I remember the writing just jumped off the page, but I wasn't ready to do it then. And I think, um, and it was just Seth. And then when they got Charlize, and it's completely without me, they they went and got Charlize. And I think Seth. So you read this like five plus years ago. I've read it so many times. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think Seth was like, there's only one actress who this movie makes sense with, and it's Charlize. And of course, that is not the easiest actress to get. Um, And when she wanted to do it, I mean, luckily, she was a fan of Seth's and she was a fan of my work. And so when she wanted to do it, that's when I came on board because that completely made sense to me. The two of them together in a sort of, you know, I envisioned it as almost like an old Hollywood kind of two um, personas, two movie stars, um, kind of uh, and exploring the chemistry and tension between those two, almost like a Hepburn Tracy kind of thing. Um, and so that became incredibly exciting to me, and that's and that's when we started really um, developing the script and, and, and getting
1: ready to make this thing. What, so what happens when somebody like Charlize comes on? Like, does she say, I have a lot of ideas about this character. How can we retrofit it? How do we make it feel more 2019? Yeah, I mean, we
0: all kind of had the goal of how to make it more 2019. Um, when Charlize comes on... Look, I mean, I've been. This is my third movie with these guys, and like, as much as we know what we're doing in the presence of Charlize, we seem very unimpressive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, she just forced us to 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 up our game. Um, you know, we didn't want to let her down. So she just brings like a level of quality and relentless pursuit of greatness um, that we do have, but it, we don't wear it the same way she does, and so it was both intimidating and exciting to have to like really take our game to the next level um and yeah i mean she's a producer on the movie she and seth are both producers on the movie so they both have um both have instincts and and they're both collaborators um and they both have people they work with who are also contributing to giving notes and talking about where it can go um so but I mean, I'm sort of generally that way with most actors, whether they're producers or not. If they have ideas, usually they're good ideas, and I sort of incorporate them into whatever we're doing. But like, you know, once we once we were ready to make the once we were ready to like, we had a start date for the movie and we had to, like, really rewrite toward a start date, that's when myself and Seth and Dan and Liz Hannah, um, with with lots of feedback from Charlize and her producing partners, set about the hard work of making this a modern film. Um, you know, it was, like I said, it was written in the Obama era. It was a very different conversation when you were talking about politics then. I mean, it's always been, first and foremost, a romantic comedy. And certainly our references were much more movies of, you know, the films of Cameron Crowe or... Um, you know, or nineties, like, you know, when Harry met Sally and stuff like that, like sophisticated romantic comedies that are both funny and romantic was always our number one goal. But, you know, it was taking place against the backdrop of, of politics and you can't not acknowledge the modern realities of politics. Yeah.
1: How much were you literally considering things like the way that the relationship people have to this stuff in the, in a, during a Trump administration?
0: Well, like we wrote it when, when we were rewriting it and, and, and to say, um, rewriting is like, we rewrote every day on set. You know, we are very kind of agile and, 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 and we can react very quickly. And, and, and that's part of why I think comedy is so exciting, um, because you can comment on things, but you know, there was like this kind of whiplash thing going on. Like, I think we wrote when, like, I remember we were in Seth's apartment in New York and like. Scaramucci like started and then got fired. It's like stuff you don't even remember. Yeah, but it was that just does feel like ten years ago. It 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 and and so the the sort of velocity of 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 drama was coming at you so at, at such a speed that like it was really really hard to figure out where are people going to be in eighteen months when this movie comes out. Um, but what we did know was that we had to acknowledge sort of the the contemporary political climate without, but not in a way where. Not in the same way that like Colbert does or John Oliver does or or even Saturday Night Live. We wanted to do it in a way that allowed us to sort of have a lighter touch with it. And so we were just thinking of things like we were just inspired by real life and not sort of that dogmatic about what really was there. And we also didn't, you know, we are not the people to give you like super relevant political insight. Like we can we can take the piss out of stuff, but we're not, you know, we're not going to do it. Insight as well as John Oliver.
1: Yeah, I'm always interested with uh, political comedy. If you if there, there's there ever any concern, like Adam McKay was here last year, and yeah. we talked about Vice. Yeah, I was like, are you concerned about potentially pissing off yeah. half or one quarter or whatever right. of your audience by being too precise and too cutting yeah. about something? Is that something that you guys are actively
0: talking about? Yes, hundred percent. Like we're talking about with this, it was such a fine line to walk. We are always talking about everything. About who we might offend, who we might embrace, what the message of the movie is, and what the sort of point of view of the movie is, and vice. Um, as much as I really enjoy that movie, is an example of something we did not want to do. Yeah, um, that is a provocative movie with a point of view about politics. That it, it that it its entire goal is to get you to to. See that point of view. Mm-hmm. Our goal was to make to entertain you and make you laugh and make you feel what it's like to fall in love, and like and our messages were much more universal. Um, our messages were much more about things that transcended politics, like remembering who you wanted to be when you were young and and finding that person who reminded you of that um, or staying true to your values, but at the same time, like listening to other people. It was like these kind of moral things that when you get into the sort of anger and vitriol of like the divisive world that we live in right now, you kind of forget that there are things that most people agree on.
1: Yeah. It is a really good love story. And the Hepburn Tracy, thing makes a lot of sense to me when you guys are talking about that. Are you literally saying like, let's watch Pat and Mike and try to see what the vibe is here to understand it a little better?
0: Um, I mean, I sort—I don't—I don't really like bring Seth and Charlize into that. I just watch that stuff. Like, I watched a lot of Lubitsch movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch a lot of movies every night in in pre-production. Um, Seth and Charlize both have different reference points for everything, but they also—they just know what they—they they just know what the end goal is, and you don't need to give them a movie to sort of get it. Sometimes, sometimes if if it's not coming across. I will say something like it's like that movie, but it has to be a movie that they've seen. And I, I, I wouldn't be like you have to see this movie. First of all, Seth just wouldn't watch it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Charlize would, and then and then it would just be weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, that's like that's I do. I watch I watch stuff a lot in pre production. It just makes me feel good, um, and more often than not, it actually informs the writing than than the actual direction of a scene. Seth and Charlize both are, they, you know, they almost direct themselves in a way. Like they just, they're just such good storytellers and they, and they understand so much about what we're doing that I don't really have to go in and, and, and sort of calibrate things. Um, you, you, usually I'll just, uh, suggest something that we try something a different way, or I'll find a joke or I'll find frequently with working with Seth and Evan, like my job is to be kind of mindful of the emotion. Um, they're, they kind of have the comedy covered. Um, so I am always looking at scenes with an eye toward that. How can it be more emotional? How can we sort of amplify that? But yeah, I mean, I definitely like to watch movies in prep. It It gives me ideas for shots. It gives me ideas for lines of dialogue, stuff
1: like that. I really love the collaboration that you and seth have going over the years i feel like his most vulnerable movies are the movies that you've directed him in
0: like yeah and and i think i i do think that's that's true although i think he he gives a great performance in funny people True, um, uh, that's very vulnerable and and awesome and 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 the jobs movie like i think you know obviously he has done vulnerability before but i think that in comedies what i'm able to do with him and why he kind of likes having me around is I am mindful of like pushing him in the sort of sweeter um, direction and, 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 and stuff he's like probably would not be as comfortable with on his own. Um, I can sort of, he trusts me on that stuff. Um, And so
1: he's willing to sort of show that side of himself with me, which is really sweet. (laughs) What's it like when you have a longstanding relationship with a movie star that you've worked with before and then another movie star comes in who's you know even in many ways a higher wattage like oh a, she's you know i was i've never been that intimidated by Seth
0: like charlie's scared the shit out of me but, but i hear like, that
1: frequently with people who've worked with charlie's
0: i mean it's it, but it's not like it's not it's just because her reputation uh precedes her as far as being just an incredibly talented actor and she's tall you know which is a little scary but like <laughs> she um and she i've seen her kick the shit out of a lot of people in movies which I guess is a little scary but like she's just so good and I think that you know for me what she brought to this movie was like she definitely classed us up a lot and she brings this sort of um you know when she's in a movie it's gonna have a certain quality level to it um so but that said like on a personal level you know, Seth and I are now, I guess, friends. I never forget that he's a movie star. And I don't like, I, I wouldn't text him as quickly as I would text like a friend who's not a movie star. Right. Um, because I think he's just busy. Um, but he definitely is like it, it, it walks the line between friend and collaborator and movie star. And Charlize very quickly, like strangely, fell into that as well. Um, she when when we started uh, prep and and we would sit, we sit down and like I don't really rehearse, but we sit down and like go through the script and Read scenes, and if dialogue doesn't seem like it's working, we'll talk about it, or, or or we'll also talk about our own personal experiences and and what we think the vibe of the scene should be. And frequently, in those instances, the actual words will change, and we'll rewrite the scene sort of on the fly. We'll have writers there, and we'll just rewrite the scene. Um, and when she sort of sat down with us, and like she's just a very down-to-earth, um, incredibly open, funny person, and we just liked her a lot. So. It's harder to forget that she's a movie star, um, but you know she. I I I now consider her to be a, a friend, and it, and it happened very very quickly, um, and so that was just really nice. And I think you see it in the movie. You see how much you know, love there is from her to, like, what Seth does and how much admiration there is from Seth to what she does. And, like, in many ways, we're sort of playing off those personas. Even though they're playing characters, we're playing off those personas in
1: the actual execution of the film. Yeah, it's true. It totally fits their characters. It's funny. I was thinking about it with her, and it seems like she bounces from a different sort of project every time, where she's like, I did Atomic Blonde, so yeah. now I do Tully. I did Tully, so now I do Long Yeah. And there seems to be something very precise about the choices she makes. But I don't know if I'd ever really seen her in, like, a classical romantic comedy before.
0: No, and I think that, um, you know, what told me that she could do it was young adult. Um, And that, to me, because in order to do these things, um, you just have to be willing to go out of your comfort zone. And for me, that movie is the most discomforting, like, thing you could... I mean, she's really just pushing the audience, almost, almost, like, alienating the audience, and it's so ballsy in punk rock, and she does it so well, and she's still getting laughs out of it. And so... um, that was the one. And then just meeting her, you just realize that she's super funny. Um, but that's a thing about her is she's always pushing herself and the movie to be better. And Seth is too. But with Charlize, it is like an obsession. It just has to be better. And we have to be trying things that we haven't seen before and have to be... And and she just, you know, it's. A, I'm just very lucky as a filmmaker to have both her, who's pushing us to get better in a certain way, and Seth, who is never accepting uh, anything as, like, finished, and we're just always reworking, always reworking until it's as good as it can be, you feel very
1: um, supported. I feel like uh, there are several moments where different supporting characters kind of walk in and, like, walk off with the movie. There's a few people that, like, really own yeah. Alexander Skarsgård and definitely Andy Circus, but particularly I thought O'Shea Jackson and yeah, Ritchie and yeah. Diane Raphael are, yeah. like, kind of just put the movie in their pocket for a little while. Um, how They're did you put all those people together? How did you decide to bring in the friends and the, the collaborators? Well, um, June was someone
0: who had worked with Seth and Evan before. I think she's in Blockers for a little bit. And they they just know her for, for a long time. And she is, you know, she came in and auditioned and she was incredible. But I just wasn't that familiar with her. And Seth, you know, talked to me about her. And I, I'd seen Burning Love a little bit. Um, I think that's the name of her. Yeah, yeah, her yeah. Uh, and so... I ju- and 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 Seth was like she's just comedy gold like she will just give you like five of the best jokes in the movie that she'll just come up with out of, out, of, in, out of her head and and he hadn't seen her audition yet and he was like I'm not so sure about the dramatic stuff and I was like oh no she nailed the dramatic stuff I just didn't know that she had it in her d- I, she was so good at the dramatic stuff I actually didn't even know that she could be incredibly funny yeah um and then, you know, I met her and just loved her. She's just so wonderful. And she's married to Paul Sheer, who is also in the movie. Yeah, very fun um, cameo. And, and the two of them together are just this, this amazing couple. And they're just so, so funny. But June, um, what I loved about her, because I, I called her after her audition, and she's very, like, politically active. And she's very, like, she took it very seriously um, from a research perspective as well. She just carried herself um, very much as this character would. And I think that that was something that was really important to us with this movie was we wanted, you know, we wanted it to be as funny as our other movies and or as This is the End or Neighbors or whatever. But we really did want to... A lot of time in in those movies, you don't believe really what's happening and you don't have to, you don't care. Um, It's just funny. And with this, we really wanted everyone to be playing a character. Um, And so that's something that she was really able to do and it was remarkable that she could do it and improvise and 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 be so funny and yet also really like help support the heart of the movie and and the stakes of the movie um and with O'Shea like I had t- just through a mutual friend I I had I knew the writer of Ingrid Goes West and before that movie came out he was just like you have to see O'Shea Jackson he's amazing and I'd known O'Shea from Straight out of Compton and Whatever, but then he came in a, and auditioned as well, and he he did a chemistry with Seth, and he was just so great. He's so funny. Oh, he's so funny, and I really really hope that he like pops from this movie because he is a movie star, and yeah, and he was just so delightful to work with. Always like always like jovial on set, always happy on set, um, and just one of those guys
1: who you could just tell him anything and he would try it. Um there's and, there's a great subversion in his character which I'm not going to spoil for people yeah, yeah. but that comes later in the movie which is really fun and it it does remind me a little bit of what you were saying about June how effectively were you trying to I guess replicate real life in a way or just like authenticate the experience of what could happen to these characters in these situations
0: Yeah I mean it was really really important to us that we we what we do in the movie is we take some absurd situations and t- and treat them very seriously um, and I think that real life did give us kind of carte blanche to do that. Um, there are things in the movie that sort of like started to kind of happen in real life sometimes that, like it was sort of an art imitating life type thing. and And that was one of the that was one of the very interesting things about what was happening in the news when we were writing this movie was we were like, there's nothing that's too fucking crazy for us to do, right. Yeah. Now. There's nothing that no one's going to believe as long as we treat it seriously. Um, so yeah, like there's something that happens with Seth at the end that I don't want to give away that is like kind of similar to like something that happened with Jeff Bezos. There's something that happened, (laughs) um, you know, there's just, there's just, and, and I, and I truly believe that more stuff like that is going to happen. Um, but it was very important for us to take it seriously. The stakes are very, very important. And so, yeah, we didn't really, I mean, I did more research for this movie than I've ever done for a movie. We wanted it to be, feel super real. Um, so we had John Kerry's chief of staff was like our consultant and he was on set a lot. And it it wasn't like we were, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make it seem like we were trying to make, you know, a like political docudrama. Right. It's not
1: advising consent. No,
0: yeah. but we did want it to pass that test. Um, you know, that's something I really like about Veep is that it just has the rhythms of what you imagine real politics to be. Um, so we really did... Make sure to do our due diligence. I read Madeline Albright's book, all 550 pages of it. Um, <laughs> What'd you learn? She's super cool. Yeah, she's awesome. Beyond that, I don't know that much. Got it. Like, it kind of informed the writing a little bit. There was some interesting stuff about. But yeah, no, it didn't really make it that much into the movie. But primarily, I did it so I could tell you I did it when I was doing press for the movie, so that I seem like a uh, good director. You nailed it. How did how does
1: it how's it going? It's going great. You're, you're crushing <laughs> it right now. Uh, when you're doing a movie like this and you're improvising a lot and you're rewriting every day, do you ever get crushed by continuity? Like, or, is there no. ever a time? No, you're always aware of kind No, of-
0: because we use two cameras. It's really like, I remember, so we shot this movie in Montreal where I shot Warm Bodies and it is a very, what's great about Montreal is they have sort of this this French love of cinema um, and also like a complimentary sort of French, um, how should I put this? Uh, they 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 felt like they knew more about how to make uh, the movie than I did for the first few days. That's really funny that you returned the favor by destroying their prime minister
1: with Skarsgård's character.
0: Um, they loved that part. <laughs> they love. I mean, they loved. They don't get to do a lot of comedies. Like Montreal is not a place where people shoot a lot of comedies. So, um, and I loved it because you could get many different looks there. And I also just loved the crew and their passion. Um, but yeah, the first day, the sound guy who had, I had worked with on More Bodies came up to me. He's like, "This is never going to cut." I was like, yeah, it'll cut, dude. Like, I've done this before. It's going to be fine. And what people don't always understand is, like, we just use two cameras. And when people are overlapping their dialogue, you just ADR the dialogue. It's really, like, now there's just so many little tricks. Um, what? So, no, continuity is not really an issue. What, what kind of it is an issue sometimes is it, is it forces you into blocking that's a little boring because when people are improvising, you kind of want them, for those two cameras to work, you really don't want them on the move. Um, or it forces you into, you, it's hard to do like a one for example, it's hard to like give it visual flair, um, when you are trying a ton of different jokes. So what I tried to do, and cause I like, I like showing off as a director and I don't get to do it that much with comedy. Um, but the movies I love are movies that show off. Um, so I tried to like pick my spots where I could do things with the camera, um, as much as possible. And I, and I tried honestly, with this movie like with the night before and with Snatched I felt like it was getting to be too much for me with improvisation and it was just like it wasn't I would find myself sitting watching two funny people just talk for a while and I would be entertained by like this is not going to be in the movie and like that was that was the cool crane shot there it's gone because everyone's been making jokes for half an hour so because you know every decision every choice you make is a choice everything you decide to shoot is like something else you can't shoot so um, so I sort of Decided to like rein it back a little bit on this movie and do a little bit more
1: with the camera. Um, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Was basically, I think, even if you've seen your other films, if you watch Mandy Lane or, or Warm Bodies, or yeah. there is a there's a their style. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. comedies, especially mainstream comedy, people don't think of as filmmaking. You know, they think of yeah. it as like put the camera on the funny people and let them say stuff. Yeah. And so I was kind of interested, and you could see, you could tell there were some moves in this movie. Like, yeah. What, what, what informed
0: that? Well, I, I, I definitely wanted the audience to feel like we were trying hard. <laughs> you know, I, I really wanted it to feel like we are, we take you seriously, we respect you, and we're going to give you a show. And so that was something that I really, from the beginning, from from the moment I was visually conceiving the movie, that was something I I kept in mind was like, I want this to feel like like eye candy a little bit, and that's what my favorite romantic comedies did. They had big sweeping set pieces. And we do a lot of that in the movie. And um, so even when I picked my cinematographer, um, who is a, um uh, a guy called Yves Belanger, who shot um with Jean-Marc Vallée and stuff like that, um he he has a artistic eye. Um and 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 I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of amazing DPs. But with him, he was not a comedy shooter. Um, so I thought that that would be an interesting... He had never done a comedy before. He was very funny. Um, but I thought that would be a very interesting way to approach it. And he... Um, like, Jean-Marc Vallée does not allow him to use lights, I guess. So he has to always, like, use practical lights and kind of sneak lights into the frame that are real lights, not movie lights. We didn't go that far with him. He was allowed to light. Um, but he was so incredibly fast that it allowed us to... Um, do more cool stuff with the camera than we normally get a chance to do. Do you think you're going to stay in the comedy
1: lane? I kind of want to talk to you about that in a bigger picture. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Because your last few have been very distinctly studio comedy.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I I think I'm getting a little bit bored of it, to be honest. Um, What, you know, what I loved about this one was that it was a little bit of both and it was a little bit more like 50-50 or Warm Bodies or even The Wackness where I could do more interesting tonal stuff with it. Um, and I could, um, really explore emotion and explore what it, what it means to fall in love. And, and, and that was something that really made this movie very interesting to me. So I always like funny stuff, but what I found with this movie was like, I really like the scene where they break up. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, (laughs) it's fine. It's a rom-com people know. Yeah. 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 They break up. I'm not sure. I can't tell you whether they get back together or not. Um, (laughs) But anyway, uh, was like it's you know I had these two amazing powerhouse actors giving it their all, and it was a purely dramatic scene. There's a couple jokes to undercut the tension, but um, I loved it, you know. And I I when when we were about to film it that morning, I watched uh, the scene in closer. Do you know that movie? Yes, I do. The Mike Nichols movie. Yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Um, and the scene where uh, Julie Roberts comes home and Clive Owen finds out Clive or was it yeah Clive yeah. Owen comes home and finds out Julie Roberts was cheating on him. And just the way that he blocked that scene is like he's just obviously an amazing filmmaker, but he's a great theater director too. And the blocking of that scene is really incredible. So I watched that and tried to like have a little bit of it inform the DNA. Uh, Basically, I'm saying I'm as good as Mike Nichols.
1: This is the shit I live for in this podcast. So I'm so glad you told that story. Um. So yes, I. But I do
0: thank you. I do. I would like. I just found myself like real uh, into doing the dramatic stuff and figuring out how to make it feel as real and emotional as possible. So I think that, look, I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. I actually don't have a new, a new movie lined up because I'm so proud of this movie. I just want to kind of chill and uh, afterwards and, and see what new doors it opens or or just write some stuff myself. So, But I do have an eye toward doing less overt
1: comedy. Is there a catch-22 there where if this movie really works this summer, then all the offers you'll get will be for things that are trying to iterate on the thing that you just did? I don't think I'm gonna get like a lot of offers for political romantic comedy. No, but romantic comedies with movie stars. That, but I would love. Th- I
0: mean, I would love to do a romantic comedy with with movie stars. I, I I really, really, um, I really loved doing. You know, I mean, Warm Bodies. I I view as a romantic comedy. It's completely different, and it allows me to flex a completely different muscle. But it is a romantic comedy. I mean, it's a romantic comedy, action, zombie. Ro- I don't know what it is, but I guess that's what I'm saying. Is it's not. Doing something that's emotional and funny is different than doing, like, a studio comedy. You know what I mean? So, if it just opens up doors into more emotional, funny material, or if I write something cool, I don't know. Maybe I will. What's that like? Have you considered it? Writing stuff? Yeah. I have some ideas of stuff I'd like to write. I haven't really had an opportunity to write too much. What's the last film that you wrote that was yours? Warm Bodies. Warm Bodies. Yeah, Yeah, no, Night Before I wrote Okay. Sorry, I forgot because okay. because I rewrote myself with right. Seth and Evan and, and and Kyle and Ariel. Is it harder now
1: to to write original scripts? It's probably harder to
0: get them made, but yeah. for me, I like doing it. It's, yeah, when I don't do it for a while, I, I it's not hard for me to just sit down and, and do it. it. Might be hard to make them good, um, but I just finished writing something. I, I'm I'm hopefully is it like a TV thing that hopefully I'm going to take out. I'm not sure how commercial it is, but it's about like my film school years. And I think it's pretty cool. It's like a John Hughes kind of film school thing. As I was writing it, I was like, okay, I still know how to do this. this is okay. still okay.
1: That sounds good. Yeah. What? So what, why do you think that the comedy has been in a rut
0: in the last couple of years? I think anytime the audience feels like they know what they're going to get, the genre kind of starts to feel a little, a little played out. I think that, you know, when Apatow came along, that was in response to a period of comedy that was like, starting to feel a little played out too. I think you had kind of like Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson and those kind of like movies. But Judd brought this amazing grounded naturalism to them and was reflecting back people like the people that the audience is. Um, and I think that that was a revelation. And then just his whole style of making movies, which is like sort of, we definitely – have have ripped off, which is the two cameras and the improvising and stuff. I mean, that's what Seth and Evan, uh, That's he mentored Seth and Evan and that informs, you know, on 50-50, I learned that style and I employ it today. And so now I think people are just starting to notice when people are improvising or people are just kind of maybe getting sick of the same pairings of the same actors. You know, I just think it starts to feel a little like you've seen it before. And I think that that's an opportunity. I mean, for us, For me, that was liberating on this movie because I was like, okay, I get to kind of be more unique and try new things or try things that harken back to a time before these movies. Um, And that was something I even felt on 50-50 was like, I'm not going to, you know, Seth is not doing the same thing as in Knocked Up. Like this is an amazing script and we're going to take that Knocked Up guy and put him in a real life situation opposite an amazing dramatic actor who's also funny. In many ways, it seems it, it was not dissimilar to what we're doing right now. But I think, like, I went—first of all, there's a couple things that really are inspiring about comedy today. I think a lot of the stuff that's happening on streaming is just incredible. I don't know if you've seen Pen15. I have, yeah. So dope. And, like, I just started watching Broad City, the the last season of Broad City. It's amazing. Um, And then uh, this movie Game Night, which I just, like, wandered into a year ago, and just watching what those guys were able to do— from a filmmaking perspective, it was almost like Edgar Wright. Like it was like just really, really. It's very good. Stylized. Very smart. It's great. Yeah, it's great. So that made me feel, I think I, I had already shot most of this movie when I saw it, but it really made me feel very positive about the future of comedy. Um, and I love comedy. I mean, more than anything, I I love comedy. Just the movies I grew up on are all comedies. Um, But it's, it's a constant renewal, you know? Right now it's like horror movies are the are the movies that are most um kind of culturally relevant. And like what Jordan Peele is doing is like there's this amazing provocativeness um to it that is like you can you can right now horror is the is the genre that's doing that,
1: but comedy will be the genre that does that again, I think. It's interesting because I felt like you were very ahead of the curve on the highly self referential horror movie. <laughs> and now like you're not doing that, then that's is the thing that is having the moment.
0: Well, yeah, I always kind of like I'm a little bit... Be- I'm a- either a little bit ahead or behind
1: some of these things. Um, Feels like Longshot is right on time. Um, I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's yes. the last great thing they've seen. You watch a lot of movies. What is the last great thing you've seen?
0: Uh, the last great thing I've seen... Well, I have to say the Criterion Channel streaming situation is wonderful. Hell yeah. I was very bummed out when Filmstruck went away, but I was like a very early adopter of the Criterion thing. And... Like, okay, so the reality of my life is my, my wife and I watch these movies at night, right before we go to sleep. And like, even the most kind of, uh, even the greatest film aficionado cannot deny that most of these movies are super fucking boring. So we watch them, <laughs> but they, they are broken up into like eight installments. We sort of like turn it into a season of TV. Yes, smart. So yeah. So right now we're watching, um, the life of Aharu. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I should come up with a more mainstream suggestion That's for a, your we audience. A, we have a
1: lot of Criterion subscribers, I'm sure. This is week one of Criterion, so if you it want to is. get on there. Check it
0: out. It's really great. And what's cool is they have a category of, like, canonical movies that you have to see. And it's just, you know, all these one like of the films. art house essentials. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, something new. What's the last thing you saw in a the theater? I saw Us. Yeah, what'd you think? I really liked it. I, 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 I really liked it. I was a little
1: confused by some stuff. I, just, I think that that's been the general response. Well, I just think he's, I was impressed, but also I'm confused.
0: Yeah, I think he's a very, very amazing director and filmmaker. I think that um, there were like these are minor quibbles, but I think that you know I did want it to make more sense a little bit, realistically. Um, but look, I just I did think it was wonderful, and I I love his movies. And I loved his casting, and I loved his. The, I love him as a filmmaker yeah his direction is is really impressive it's just just amazing I just didn't get like why how, where did everyone get the scissors <laughs> and like I just have a bunch of questions about it but like that's not what that wasn't what he cared about right he cared about this allegorical um, thing that worked like it just worked you know um, and I got that it, as dumb as I am I understood his uh, what he was going through. I completely
1: agree uh, and <laughs> long shot works Jonathan thanks man thank
0: you very much man
1: Thank you again to Amanda Dobbins, Rob Harvilla, and of course, Jonathan Levine. Please join us next week when we'll be back on The Big Picture, talking about Netflix's new Ted Bundy film, among other things. See you then.